Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 10, Fortune's Smile, Part 2 Such were my outdoor delights before I met Arthur, and all these he shared and confirmed. And in his search for the homely, he taught me to see other things as well. But for him I should never have known the beauty of the ordinary vegetables that we destined to the pot. Drills, he used to say. Just ordinary drills of cabbages. What can be better? And he was right. Often he recalled my eyes from the horizon just to look through a hole in a hedge, to see nothing more than a farmyard in its mid-morning solitude, and perhaps a gray cat squeezing its way under a barn door, or a bent old woman with a wrinkled motherly face coming back with an empty bucket from the pigsty. But best of all, we liked it when the homely and the unhomely met in sharp juxtaposition. If a little kitchen garden ran steeply up a narrowing enclave of fertile ground, surrounded by outcroppings and firs, or some shivering quarry pool under a moonrise could be seen on our left, and on our right the smoking chimney and lamp-lit window of a cottage that was just settling down for the night. Meanwhile, on the continent, the unskilled butchery of the First German War went on. As it did so, and as I began to foresee that it would probably last till I reached military age, I was compelled to make a decision which the law had taken out of the hands of English boys of my own age. For in Ireland, we had no conscription. I did not much plume myself even then for deciding to serve, but I did feel that the decision absolved me from taking any further notice of the war. For Arthur, whose heart hopelessly disqualified him, there was no such question. Accordingly, I put the war on one side to a degree which some people will think shameful, and some incredible. Others will call it a flight from reality. I maintain that it was rather a treaty with reality, the fixing of a frontier. I said to my country, in effect, you shall have me on a certain date, not before. I will die in your wars if need be, but till then I shall live my own life. You may have my body, but not my mind. I will take part in battles, but not read about them. If this attitude needs excusing, I must say that a boy who is unhappy at school inevitably learns the habit of keeping the future in its place. If once he began to allow infiltrations from the coming term into the present holidays, he would despair. Also, the Hamilton in me was always on guard against the Lewis. I had seen enough of the self-torturing temperament. No doubt, even if the attitude was right, the quality in me, which made it so easy to adopt, is somewhat repellent. Yet, even so, I can hardly regret having escaped the appalling waste of time and spirit which would have been involved in reading the war news or taking more than an artificial and formal part in conversations about the war. To read without military knowledge or good maps accounts of fighting which were distorted before they reached the divisional general and further distorted before they left him and then written up out of all recognition by journalists to strive to master what will be contradicted the next day, to fear and hope intensely on shaky evidence, is surely an ill use of the mind. Even in peacetime, I think those are very wrong who say that schoolboys should be encouraged to read the newspapers. 
Nearly all that a boy reads there in his teens will be known before he is twenty to have been false in emphasis and interpretation, if not in fact as well, and most of it will have lost all importance. Most of what he remembers he will therefore have to unlearn, and he will probably have acquired an incurable taste for vulgarity and sensationalism and the fatal habit of fluttering from paragraph to paragraph to learn how an actress has been divorced in California, a train derailed in France, and quadruplets born in New Zealand. I was happier now than I had ever been. All the sting had been drawn from the beginning of term, yet the homecoming at its end remained almost as joyful as before. The holidays grew better and better. Our grown-up friends, and especially my cousins at Mount Bracken, now seemed less grown-up, for one's immediate elders grow downwards or backwards to meet one at that age. There were many merry meetings, much good talk, I discovered that other people besides Arthur loved books that I loved. The horrible old social functions, the dances, were at an end, for my father now allowed me to refuse the invitations. All my engagements were now pleasant ones, within a small circle of people who were all intermarried, or very old neighbors, or, the women anyway, old schoolfellows. I am shy of mentioning them. Of Mount Bracken, I have had to speak because the story of my life could not be told without it. Beyond that, I hesitate to go. Praise of one's friends is near impertinence. I cannot tell you here of Janie M., nor of her mother, nor of Bill and Mrs. Bill. In novels, provincial suburban society is usually painted gray to black. I have not found it so. I think we Strand Town and Belmont people had among us as much kindness, wit, beauty and taste as any circle of the same size that I have ever known. At home, the real separation and apparent cordiality between my father and myself continued. Every holidays I came back from Kirk with my thoughts and my speech a little clearer, and this made it progressively less possible to have any real conversation with my father. I was far too young and raw to appreciate the other side of the account, to weigh the rich, if vague, fertility the generosity and humor of my father's mind against the dryness, the rather death-like lucidity, of Kirk's. With the cruelty of youth I allowed myself to be irritated by traits in my father which, in other elderly men, I have since regarded as lovable foibles. There were so many unbridgeable misunderstandings. Once I received a letter from my brother in my father's presence, which he immediately demanded to see. He objected to some expressions in it about a third person. In defense of them, I pleaded that they had not been addressed to him. "'What nonsense!' answered my father. "'He knew you would show me the letter, and intended you to show me the letter.' In reality, as I well knew, my brother had foolishly gambled on the chance that it would arrive when my father was out. But this my father could not conceive. He was not overriding by authority a claim to privacy which he disallowed. He could not imagine anyone making such a claim." My relations to my father help explain, I am not suggesting that they excuse, one of the worst acts of my life. I allowed myself to be prepared for confirmation, and confirmed, and to make my first communion in total disbelief, acting a part, eating and drinking my own condemnation. As Johnson points out, where courage is not, no other virtue can survive except by accident. Cowardice, drove me into hypocrisy, and hypocrisy into blasphemy. 
It is true that I did not, and could not then know the real nature of the thing I was doing. But I knew very well that I was acting a lie with the greatest possible solemnity. It seemed to me impossible to tell my father my real views. Not that he would have stormed and thundered like the traditional orthodox parent. On the contrary, he would, at first, have responded with the greatest kindness. Let's talk the whole thing over, he would have said. But it would have been quite impossible to drive into his head my real position. The thread would have been lost almost at once. And the answer implicit in all the quotations, anecdotes, and reminiscences which would have poured over me would have been one I then valued, not a straw. The beauty of the authorized version, the beauty of the Christian tradition and sentiment and character. And later, when this failed, when I still tried to make my exact points clear, there would have been anger between us, thunder from him, and a thin, peevish rattle from me. Nor could the subject, once raised, ever have been dropped again. All this, of course, ought to have been dared rather than the thing I did. But at the time it seemed to me impossible. The Syrian captain was forgiven for bowing in the house of Rimen. I am one of many who have bowed in the house of the real God, when I believed him to be no more than Rimen. During the weekends and evenings I was closely tethered to my father and felt this something of a hardship, since these were the times when Arthur was most often accessible. My weekdays continued to supply me with a full ration of solitude. I had, to be sure, the society of Tim, who ought to have been mentioned far sooner. Tim was our dog. He may hold a record for longevity among Irish terriers since he was already with us when I was at Oldies and did not die till 1922. But Tim's society did not amount to much. It had long since been agreed between him and me that he should not be expected to accompany me on walks. I went a good deal further than he liked for his shape was already that of a bolster, or even a barrel, on four legs. Also, I went to places where other dogs might be met, and though Tim was no coward, I have seen him fight like a demon on his home ground. He hated dogs. In his walking days he had been known, on seeing a dog far ahead, to disappear behind the hedge and re-emerge a hundred yards later. His mind had been formed during our school days, and he had, perhaps, learned his attitude to other dogs from our attitude to other boys. By now, he and I were less like master and dog than like two friendly visitors in the same hotel. We met constantly, passed the time of day, and parted with much esteem to follow our own paths. I think he had one friend of his own species, a neighboring red setter, a very respectable middle-aged dog, perhaps a good influence, for poor Tim, though I loved him, was the most undisciplined, unaccomplished, and dissipated-looking creature that ever went on four legs. He never exactly obeyed you. He sometimes agreed with you. The long hours in the empty house passed delightfully in reading and writing. I was in the midst of the romantics now. There was a humility in me as a reader at that time which I shall never recapture. Some poems I could not enjoy as well as others. It never occurred to me that these might be the inferior ones. I merely thought that I was getting tired of my author, or was not in the right mood. The long years of Endymion I attributed wholly to myself. The swoony element in Keats's sensuality, as when Porphyro grows faint, I tried hard to like, and failed. I thought, though I have forgotten why, that Shelley must be better than Keats, and was sorry I liked him less. But my great author at this period was William Morris. 
I had met him first in quotation, in books on Norse mythology. That led me to Sigurd the Volsung. I did not really like this as much as I tried to, and I think I now know why. The meter does not satisfy my ear. But then, in Arthur's bookcase, I found The Well at the World's End. I looked. I read chapter headings. I dipped. The next day I was off into town to buy a copy of my own. Like so many new steps, it appeared to be partly a revival, knights in armor returning from a very early period of my childhood. After that, I read all the Morris I could get. Jason, the earthly paradise, the prose romances, the growth of the new delight is marked by my sudden realization, almost with a sense of disloyalty, that the letters, William Morris, were coming to have at least as potent a magic in them as Wagner. One other thing that Arthur taught me was to love the bodies of books. I had always respected them. My brother and I might cut up stepladders without scruple. To have thumb-marked or dog's-eared a book would have filled us with shame. But Arthur did not merely respect. He was enamored. And soon, I too. The setup of the page, the feel and smell of the paper, the differing sounds that different papers make as you turn the leaves, became sensuous delights. This revealed to me a flaw in Kirk. How often have I shuddered when he took a new classical text of mine in his gardener's hands, bent back the boards till they creaked, and left his sign on every page. Yes, I remember, said my father. That was old Knox's one fault. A bad one, said I. An all but unforgivable one, said my father. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.